in philosophy, uh, we do all of these really interesting sort of thought experiments. Um, and so we're used to trying to think really carefully about what's the nature, how, how much choice do we have? What is our free will? Uh, what is the nature of reality? If what we, you know, do we experience the world as it is? Uh, so those are questions that would fascinate philosophers and were fascinating to me. So I think all of that was, was certainly uh, on my mind going into the surgery. I want you to meet Adam Hayden. Adam? Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? He is 38 years old. He is a philosopher, a writer, a speaker, a husband, and a father. And he is all of this and so much more while living with an aggressive brain cancer called glioblastoma. What you're hearing is Adam describing what he was thinking about going into surgery to remove a seven centimeter brain tumor from his head. To put that size into context, it's about the size of a baseball. And the reason that Adam could consciously think about the nature of reality during his surgery is because he was awake. And a, a friend of mine, a professor friend of mine, actually said, um, you know, well, now we're going to figure out if, you know, you're really just some uh, brain hooked up to some big simulation device uh, or if it's really you. <laughs> that's what <laughs> that's what he commented about my awake surgery. So, yeah, I was just really curious. Now, I consider myself a curious person, but Wow. It takes a really incredible person to philosophize during their own brain surgery. But Adam didn't get to just think in abstract terms. He had to make life-defining decisions as well. So uh, during surgery, the surgeon was like, listen, I've taken as much of this tumor out as I can safely. The surgeon said, I can be more aggressive and take out more of this tumor, um, but at that point... Uh, there's a risk to damaging the healthy part of the brain that is around the tumor. And if we damage that area, it could result in permanent paralysis for the left side of your body. Um, so the surgeon could do that. Or the surgeon said, um, I can just stop the procedure now, knowing that we've removed as much of this tumor as we can safely, um, but hopefully limit some of the harm to the healthy areas of the brain. Uh, so Adam, the surgeon, asked me, what would you like to do? You will hear what he decided in a couple of minutes, but I think it's important to know a bit about who Adam was before his brain cancer diagnosis to try and understand what makes him, him. My first couple of years of my 20s were just sort of, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. um, but I had to pay the bills, so <laughs> I, I got a job. Uh, and slowly sort of moved up. It was a, an hourly position. Um, and then, you know, it was a supervisor, then an assistant manager, and then a store manager. So I was kind of doing management stuff in retail. Um, that was not wholly satisfying to my life. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I, had, I had left that um, and gone back to school for philosophy. And so that gave some structure and some purpose and some meaning. Um, but all along the way, uh, I, I was married uh, to my still spouse, Whitney, uh, and she was uh, very generous to let me go back to school. 
And the trade-off was that, uh, or at least the plan before a diagnosis, the plan was that um, I would do school, finish school, get a good job, uh, and then she could leave her full-time job, be part-time, uh, and that we would grow a family and she would work part-time. Uh, and so we were doing that. That was kind of what we had. I had finished school. Um, I got on at a training and development company where I was working as an instructional designer. Um, that was good work. And it was uh, just about one year into that sort of like new life of stability um, that the diagnosis came. Imagine that for a moment. You're finally living the life that you and your spouse were hoping for. And then it all gets upended. But even the year and a half leading up to his diagnosis in the spring of 2016 was not without challenges. Because during that time, Adam was beginning to experience unusual symptoms. You know, it started as kind of a curiosity. Um, I mean, certainly uh, some concern. Um, but, you know, I am a curious guy. And so <laughs> I think my interest was piqued more than anything. Like, what's going on here? So it was uh, the very first episode um, was an undiagnosed seizure mm. uh, that came the day after Christmas in 2014. Uh, I didn't have any language for that at the time. Um, it, I just kind of chalked it up to, because it was the day after Christmas, I thought, well, maybe it's just the holidays and stress. And uh, I Adam was, goes I on to explain how his symptoms continued. Initially, there was dizziness and weakness in his body. But without any major medical history, his doctors first thought that it might be vertigo or maybe stress. So he was sent to physical therapy to do some stretching exercises. And also through the stretching practice, we thought maybe if I commit to that every day, that would be a nice coping mechanism for any stress I was having. Uh, so we thought that would be a good way to alleviate the symptoms. Um, I don't know if I'm giving it away in the way that I'm presenting this story, uh, but that did not work. <laughs> so <laughs> these episodes continued. So that was... Uh, and so Adam went back to the doctor again. For a, for a visit. And my regular GP was out of the office. And so another uh, physician from the same practice uh, saw me for a, a follow-up appointment. And that physician had told me, uh, and this was at the end of 2015, just to get the dots on the timeline, I guess, uh, correct. Um, that doctor said, uh, and I, I'll never forget this, and I've said it before, but said, quote, Adam, if there was something seriously wrong with you, you would be in much worse shape. But something was seriously wrong. And then the, the episodes persisted into 2016 when they were almost daily and oh, were debilitating. I mean, I could not remain standing at all. I was beginning to get tunnel vision. Uh, I had weakness always on the kind of left side of my body, but that weakness had escalated to just near uh, temporary paralysis. I mean, that sounds extreme, but I mean, it was. I, I just, I didn't have use of my left arm at all while it was happening. So when I went back, finally in 2016, that spring, um, it was like, we have got to do something. Uh, this has gotten to where I, I can't, I don't feel safe driving. Uh, I don't really even feel safe sort of walking around the office. Um, what, you know, what could happen? Uh, so then I was sent for an MRI. And that MRI revealed a really sizable uh, primary brain tumor, a 71 millimeter tumor or seven centimeter tumor. Uh, so pretty good size 
piece of tumor <laughs> in my brain. It's hard to believe that Adam was going about his days with a tumor growing inside of his brain. And as a fellow parent, I think it's important to mention here that at the time of diagnosis, Adam had three young children. So while this tumor was growing in his parietal lobe, the area of the brain responsible for motor control, sensory input, and spatial reasoning, he was going to work, spending time with his wonderful wife, Whitney, and chasing after three energetic boys. And while it took a long time to figure out what was going on with Adam, once his doctor saw a tumor the size of a baseball in his brain, surgery was scheduled immediately. Uh, my surgeon, along with uh, my surgeon's colleagues, decided that the best way forward would be to perform that surgery while I was kept awake. Um, so that if I was awake during the surgery, uh, they could better sort of limit the potential harm to some of those functional areas of the brain. So surgery was, you know, it's something that, you know, that, that I, I just can still bring it to mind vividly. Um, mm. it, it was an experience. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. Um, it was fascinating. And I think I mentioned earlier, you know, that the very first seizure that I had, um, it was uh, scary, but a thing of curiosity to me. That's been a theme. Uh, surgery was just the same way. I mean, of course, terrifying because uh, you've got a brain tumor. You don't know what it means. You're having brain surgery. You're awake. I mean, all the reasons that you would expect to be terrified. I certainly was afraid, um, but also really, really curious in what that would be like. Um, and so maybe that's why I remember it so well, because I, I have this feeling uh, almost like a, a gonzo journalist, you know, there's somebody who embeds themselves. Uh, I, I sort of report my memories as though I'm both a journalist and person experiencing the surgery. So it's, I have a really weird relationship with those memories. And here's where we will get to hear what Adam ended up deciding about the question his doctor posed him during his surgery. Uh, so Adam, the surgeon, asked me, what would you like to do? Mm. Um, so th there I am, <laughs> you know, clamped my head, you know, literally clamped in three-point fixation to an operating table, uh, wondering, do I want to risk paralysis to be really aggressive with my surgery? Or do I want to say, let's back off, um, you know, leaving some of the tumor in my head, uh, but knowing that we're going to protect the majority of my my function. Wow. Uh, and that's the that's the decision uh, that I went with. Thinking about the kids at home, you, we, I was trying to figure out how many kids we had through the different timelines I was giving you. At that time, our, we had three. All three of the boys were with us uh, at that point, and our youngest, Gideon, was only eight months old. Oh, my gosh. So there on the table, it was like, man, I got an eight-month-old at home. You know, I'm, I'm used to crawling around after this guy. Uh, so for me, uh, risking paralysis... Um, for the possible benefit of more tumor removal just didn't seem to make sense. Um, and my surgeon also shared some pretty sage wisdom with me uh, in that conversation, in that operating room. The surgeon said, uh, Adam, you've got to make decisions based on your quality of life today, not what you think could happen in the future. And that turned out to be really excellent uh, advice. This is wisdom that has continued to help guide Adam through other treatment decisions. But I wanted to know if before this moment, had he always been able to make such monumental decisions so quickly? Wow, I just cannot imagine having to make that decision within minutes. Um, 
And is that, have you always been able to make decisions that quickly or how have you made decisions throughout your life prior to getting a diagnosis like this? Oh, I love that question. What a great question. Um, it's, and it, it brings a smile to my face. And, and here's why, because uh, Whitney and I always joke about, um, you know, like a lot of couples, you know, we'll spend three hours talking about where we're going to go have dinner that night. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to like big decisions, we just like make them split second, uh, which is funny. Uh, I remember we the, the first home that we bought, uh, we went to, you know, the home store or whatever to pick out paints. And we just like went right down the line and picked out like five paint colors in 15 minutes. Uh, but then, you know, spent the rest of the night figuring out where to get takeout. So, um, yeah, I, you know, they, I had a little bit of prep for the decision. I mean, they said I didn't know that that specific question was coming. Um, but when I talked to the surgeon about this awake procedure, um, you know, the surgeon was like, listen, you know, this does give us an opportunity to make some decisions in the moment if we have to. So I didn't know what the decisions would be exactly, but I certainly was sort of primed to consider, um, you know, I'm going to have to do a little bit of critical thinking in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how much did you anticipate getting a diagnosis of glioblastoma? I mean, were you expecting that somewhat or were you just totally um, trying not to think about it and wait until you get the actual diagnosis? Yeah. I th um, so a little bit of both, I think. Um, so, and here's what I mean by that. We didn't, I, I, you know, I, I didn't even know the word glioblastoma until my oncologist told me you have glioblastoma. So it was certainly not a, a word that was on my mind or something that I had thought about. What my surgeon had said to me is based on the MRI scans, he said that your tumor looks really aggressive. And uh, right after surgery, when the surgeon came out to the waiting room to meet my family and to tell Whitney how things went during the surgery, he reiterated that to her. He said, you know, now that I've been in there to remove this tumor, um, I will say it looks very mean and aggressive. So mm. uh, we didn't have the language for it. We didn't know the terminology, um, but we had been primed. Uh, at least since that MRI that had occurred a week earlier, you know, we had been primed to expect something, you know, more serious rather than less serious. Uh, mm -hmm. So we at least sort of had that uh, knowledge in mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so when the oncologist shared that information about what it was, um, I'm just curious, during the surgery, you had this sort of level of curiosity about what was going on. And so what was it like for you to actually hear the diagnosis? Did you still have that level of curiosity or was it more just like a flood of emotions pouring out at that moment? Yeah, I, the, the thing that I remember most. So, I mean, I think there are two things that I remember most um, about that that meeting um, when we got the diagnosis. Um, uh, there was damage to my brain through surgery. Um, so although not permanent paralysis, um, because of the, the nature of the surgery and where the tumor was, I was a wheelchair user right after surgery and really, really limited mobility on my left hand and arm. I mean, I was having to move it with my functional right arm. So I was discharged from the hospital immediately into an inpatient rehab facility where I would spend a few weeks learning to walk again, learning to bathe myself and to eat and all that stuff. Um, and, and so I was 
you know, medically transported from that hospital to my oncologist's office. So I think, you know, when I reflect on hearing the diagnosis for the first time, I think it's important that it's set against this backdrop of really limited mobility and sort of fear and uncertainty about that as well. Uh, So really a a kind of just a, I don't know, a a volatile time, I think, in our life. Like just what does all of this mean? Mm -hmm. Um, the, The two things that I remember from receiving the diagnosis, one is... When the the oncologist, when my oncologist said glioblastoma, the nurse, his nurse, the nurse navigator that was in the room, uh, reached across uh, from her chair and grabbed uh, my hand in one of hers and Whitney's hand in the other, and she just squeezed our hands. Um, and so that was such an it, it was comforting, but it was also an indication that this is really serious. Um, mm. You know, they're not going to hold your hand. You know, if you've got the flu. Um, so it was an indication. This is a big deal. The second part of it that, that I think also sort of dovetailed on that, uh, my oncologist, uh, gave the diagnosis and then said, uh, and I can hear him saying this, he said, but you have many positive prognostic indicators. I think I remember that because I didn't have any idea what in the heck that meant. (laughs) 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 Um, but it was like, man, if we're talking about you know, like some sort of a qualifying remark of like trying to cheer me up through, you know, positive prognostic indicators. It was like, if that's the best you got for me, that doesn't feel very promising right now. Even with positive prognostic indicators, glioblastoma is a mean disease. The median survival for patients with glioblastoma in general is 16 months. And while Adam's positive prognostic indicators help explain why he is alive today, glioblastoma remains an aggressive and deadly cancer. So how in the world did you tell your children this? I mean, you had three boys of varying ages, of course. How did you and your wife decide to tell them? Yeah. Um, so there was, I, I, we kind of gave them, I guess we rolled out the information to them in sort of a planned phased, and this makes it sound way too sort of rehearsed or strategic. Whitney and I thought a lot about this is the reality. And, um, you know, while I was in that inpatient rehab facility, um, there were a lot of things that you just see on the surface that, would be frightening or disconcerting to our kids. I mean, I'm, you know, they weren't used to seeing dad in a wheelchair. So just that alone mm-hmm. is a new or strange thing. Um, and it, I'm not, you know, I guess this is a podcast, so uh, people can choose to imagine if they want to. I don't mean to be graphic, um, but, you know, it took 40 surgical staples to close my scalp. Mm. So, um, you know, you can't hide 40 surgical staples across the top of your head. Uh, So that was, you know, so when the kids came to visit me in the hospital, it's like, man, dad's in a wheelchair and dad's got this weird Frankenstein's monster thing on the top of his head. Uh, What is up? So I think our first effort was just to help the kids to be okay with, um, you know, let's address some of these fears. Let's address what's wrong with dad. And so our initial conversations with the boys, and of course, I had mentioned our youngest was eight months old. Um, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't sort of intellectualizing these things. He's eight months old. Um, our kids were all very young. They're, they're now, everybody's having birthdays right now. So they're nine, seven, and five. 
uh, as of um, as of October, that will be their ages. But um, anyway, uh, so, so it was like, well, let's talk about, um, yeah, dad had surgery. And that's this uh, wound that you see, this incision. Uh, and that will eventually heal. And yeah, dad's in a wheelchair, but he is working with therapists uh, to learn to walk with a walker. And then I was learning to walk with a cane. So I think the initial conversations were a lot about superficial stuff that the kids could see, uh, and not superficial as in shallow, but just like cosmetic, right? The stuff that you see on the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just setting expectations around what my mobility would look like moving forward. And I think by focusing on those things, um, that was enough to sort of help us begin talking about illness uh, and giving ourselves some of the language and vocabulary for it. Uh, and then slowly over time, uh, as, as Whitney and I became involved in volunteer stuff through National Brain Tumors Society, I think as a family, uh, we started to talk about raising money for medical research. We started talking about brain tumors and our kids were absorbing that um, and then I think it, we just reached the point where we felt like Isaac, our oldest, was ready for the conversation. Um, and he had just been accepted to a summer camp, Camp Kesem, a summer camp for kids whose parents uh, have or have had cancer. Uh, so knowing that he had just been accepted to that camp, knowing that he had been around a lot of this language around brain tumors and stuff, uh, we just sort of made it real for him. And we, we sat him down and the other, uh, his brothers were around not paying a ton of attention. They were still really young. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, we, we've got pictures on our wall, like I'm sure a lot of families do in their homes. And we talked about relatives and loved ones. And we talked about loved ones who we have photographed on the wall, but who are no longer with us. And we used those as examples to kind of broach the subject of death. Uh, and we told Isaac that uh, this thing that dad had surgery for uh, is, is a brain tumor. Uh, and that brain tumor is a type of cancer uh, and that daddy probably will not live to be an old man uh, like some of your grandparents have or like maybe your friend's parents or grandparents have. Uh, and so it's going to be a different experience uh, for you. And so that's that's how we broke it to him. Wow. What was his response in that moment? I mean, just from a kid's point of view. Um, Isaac is uh, really, really perceptive. Um, I think he has a lot of the sort of stereotypical firstborn qualities, uh, which is, you know, responsible, maybe, you know, too responsible, like takes on too much, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think sees himself. And this is also in the way that Whitney and I treat him as 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 parents. um, But I think he sees himself as our partners. Uh, And so I think he was he listened intently. I'm not sure if he understood it completely, um, but we also gave him a job. And I think that was really important. We said, you know, dad. Uh, is I was still at a risk uh, for seizures. I had even, while still at the hospital, I had had a really serious seizure so that we knew that that was a threat. Um, so that we, we told Isaac, you know, we said, listen, you can help look out for dad. And here are some things that you may be able to do to help him. And we talked to him about what would it look like if dad had a seizure, for example. And I think uh, giving him the information uh, and making it real for him, but then also giving him a job, I think helped him feel like he could be a partner uh, in this illness experience uh, with with me and Whitney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine it would just help him feel like he was doing something to help you. Yeah, uh, get, give a, you know a little bit of control, I guess, uh, even if it's elusive, <laughs> you know, control, but given some some control. Yeah, and so I'm just wondering how how you choose to live your life. I mean, knowing that your time now is 
more limited than you ever expected. How do you, how does that influence the choices you make in your life right now? Yeah, there's, I, I think what I realized pretty quickly, um, I, you know, I, I, I regretted, um, how do I say this? Um, you know, I, that wandering through my twenties that I kind of shared with you, um, I gave myself permission to do that because I never doubted, I never doubted myself. I think fundamentally, I always sort of knew, I think that I was going to find my way. Um, I didn't know exactly what the destination would be, but there was, I never got to a point in that wandering where I just felt completely lost. It was always like, I'm going to figure this out. It may take some time. It may be on a different timeline than my peers, but I'm going to figure this out. So I think the diagnosis was like, man, I was just getting to a place where we were figuring this out. Mm. Um, and I think for Whitney as well, I mean, Whitney, she is such a champion. And, and I don't, um, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional even rehearsing this right now, which I didn't expect to be the case. Uh, you know, Whitney really trusted me. Uh, I stepped away from a career to return to school. It was sort of on the agreement that I that I would return that favor, you know, that she could move to that part-time thing. And so when she made that decision, it was such an accomplishment. Uh, it was like I was making good on my my promise. And I think for her, you know, for Whitney, she really wanted to be, um, you know, part-time worker, but mostly at home with the kids and growing a family. Um, so I think it was like the, the, the initial stuff was like, oh my gosh, like I was finally getting my feet under me mm -hmm. and now I'm thrown back into this uncertainty. Uh, so I began to really grieve, uh, the stuff that I thought I was going to do. It was like, I shouldn't have given myself such a long leash, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it turns out I'm not going to have the time that I thought I'd have to get it all figured out. So that, that was a really early, uh, you know, I mean, for, for that put a lot of pressure on the relationship. Uh, Whitney and I are, are, she continues to be an advocate, my champion. She is, and I don't, this isn't just lip service. I mean, she's my best friend. I, there isn't anybody that is a closer confidant uh, or a better partner in figuring out this world than my wife. Um, but that put pressure on the relationship. I mean, her, she had like, I was a bartender working late nights, uh, not making a ton of money, going to grad school all day. I mean, she lived through that, holding our family together. Uh, I finally get my stuff figured out. And within a year, I get this terrible diagnosis. So I think um, figuring out, you know, what to do uh, became really, really difficult uh, because I just kind of felt guilty. Mm. Um, and that speaks to, I think, the, the guilt of cancer, which is weird. Um, you know, you, you, you feel guilty, uh, or at least I did, because you knew that, that an interruption to your life was also a disruption to the lives of loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think what, what you know, to live life, I mean, I, I think the things that I think about, um, I think a lot about legacy, um, you know, like what, what is the work that I leave behind? I'm not sure if I'm too fixated on that or not, but that's, that has always felt really important to me. Um, I've always wanted for uh, our boys to, to get to know me and I don't want to be a doomsday uh, teller here. Um, I mean, I, I'm already beating the survival odds. I mean, I'm like four years into this diagnosis that kills a lot of people in half the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm thankful for those years. And I, I have every intent of continuing to live and live and live and live. Um, but knowing that Gideon now, uh, he will be five soon. He's going to turn five really soon. But even at five, you don't have like a ton of memories 
uh, from your childhood. So I think for me, I've always thought, you know, my kids are going to get to know me through my work. So uh, blogging and speaking, uh, those became the priorities for me. Um, but I think now that I've got longer survival, it's shifting my daily life where I'm not putting as much effort into sort of contributing stuff into the world. And I'm, you know, focusing more on my presence here at home uh, with my family. That's an important shift that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm needing to do a better job about, but I'm working on it. So do you wake up every morning and are you just very intentional about every single thing you do? Or are there times where you just allow yourself to veg out and watch a lot of shows or, you know, what is it, what is it like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that question too. I mean, you know, I think I'd, I'd be lying to everybody if I said that I woke up, you know, with intention every day. Um, you know, I think that I, I try to develop a practice of some mindfulness and some presence, um, but that's always a work in progress. Um, the, the reality, and I think that there's a critique here of um, really how we organize society itself. I mean, I know that's a big claim, um, but I think the way that we treat um, disability benefits, the way that we have uh, created uh, an American healthcare system that is reimbursement driven, um, the, the reality is uh, I've got to work. Um, and I mean, I wouldn't have to, but we wouldn't get to do the extra stuff that we do as a family if I didn't work. So Whitney works full time outside of the home. She is the primary earner. Um, but you know, we wouldn't have anything extra if I didn't also work part time. So it's a weird, um, you know, so my mornings look like the mornings for a lot of parents and guardians everywhere. So I, I, you know, I get up, the kids have got to get to school. Somebody's got to make them breakfast. Whitney's out the door to get to the hospital. Uh, she works at a, at an inpatient, uh, she's an occupational therapist. So, you know, a lot of my days look pretty typical. Um, check my email, get the kids dressed, get them out the door. Um, you know, but then there's definitely, I definitely carve out time to be reflective. Uh, and I think they come in the quiet moments when the home is empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so have your doctors, I mean, just thinking about how you plan your time, have your doctors given you indications about how much time they think you have left? Or is that something that you try not to think too much about? Yeah, the, um, gosh, it's such a fraught conversation, I think, because, um, you know, the, 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 so there's a lot, right? The, the best we can do is we can look to population statistics, um, that's a little bit hairy in and of itself. I mean, I think a lot of patients are quick to say, and rightfully so, well, I, you know, I'm only a statistic of one. It's only me. And, and that's important. I think we need to remind ourselves of that all the time. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to remind ourselves that statistics are just the amalgamation of ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so we, we, we may be a statistic of one, but all the population statistics are made up of all of us. So it's not as though we're not affected uh, or guided by those statistics in some way. Um, my oncologist has not been, uh, you know, there is not a precise prognosis that can be uh, given at this time. Uh, it would only be sort of educated guessing to get to that. So there's, there's some good work. There's a, a particular genetic mutation that uh, can, can be mutated in glioblastoma tumors. Uh, and this um, mutation is on the ID H gene. When there is a mutation on that particular gene, those glioblastoma tumors 
tend to respond a little bit better to the first-line chemotherapy that we use than glioblastoma tumors that do not have that same mutation. I am one who I have that mutation. So from some of the data, uh, it would suggest that my survival curve may be a little bit longer than if I didn't have that mutation. Uh, you know, so that's a tricky thing to talk about because uh, all sorts of, right, there's this like survivor's guilt. There's that guilt again. There's that element. Um, it's like, well, man, I, you know, I know lots of folks who have the mutation and lots of folks who don't. So it's weird for me to talk about my survival expectancy being better than others that because it's only a, you know, dumb luck of nature that I have that mutation. Um, but I think it also brings a little bit of, uh, it, it provides some explanation. Uh, because here I am at four years out, uh, I know people who have gone from diagnosis to death within 10 months. Mm. So I think understanding the science behind that helps to explain why my survival has been a little bit better. Uh, and I think gives us a little bit of, of confidence um, that I will continue uh, to survive longer than what the big population statistics tell us. Mm -hmm. So when those statistics, I mean, obviously they're they're based on larger groups of people. And so it's hard to know exactly for every individual. How does that uncertainty um, affect your relationship with time? Like, does it slow it down? Does it speed it up? I'm just so curious what it does to how you feel about time. Yeah. And this is where there is some relatability here, I think, for a lot of people in, in the here and the now, because um, illness itself uh, I think profoundly influences our relationship with time. And as we speak today, with 170,000 Americans dead because of the coronavirus or because of COVID-19, um, I think corporately, as a country, um, people are reacting to this strange relativity of time uh, and how it feels different in our lives, um, that you wake up some days and, you know, at the time of our conversation today, we're eight months or so into the pandemic. And I think people will think like, oh, my gosh, I just remember reading about the first case yesterday. Or people are like, you know, we're not even done the 2020 yet. Are you serious? It feels like it's been a decade. So I think corporately, a lot of us can, can relate to that weird relationship with time as a result of uncertainty and illness. Um, here, you know, so this is a, I, I share, I think I tweeted this or I, or I posted that. I don't know. I said this recently. Um, I was filling out, there was something really cool that I wanted to sign up for. There's a, like a task force team that's coming together. Um, there's that nerdy stuff again that I was excited <laughs> to sign up for. A task force. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway, the, it, it was going to convene at an annual conference uh, that's being planned for 2023. So it was like to, to plan a group, to start meeting in advance of that, to then do some work at a conference in 2023. And uh, it was the first time in a long time since diagnosis. I had a lot of these thoughts uh, within the first several months and year of diagnosis, but it was the first time in a long time that I, I paused when filling out the application and I thought about 2023 and I closed out the application and I decided not to submit it because that felt like it was too far away in the distance for me to commit to. Wow. Um, so that's a weird, uh, that just happened, uh, I mean, like three weeks ago or something. I mean, I, I, that's a recent experience in my life. Um, so there's no doubt that, uh, gosh, 
you know, even, even with four years of living with this disease, it feels in those four years like it's been my whole life because uh, it just is so consuming. Um, and yet, two years feels like too far away to make any commitment. Um, weird. Yeah. So was that experience of deciding not to pursue that application, was it just one that you just accepted? Or was there a lot of sadness attached to that moment? Yeah, there, there was. Um, I think uh, sadness, uh, and I think also some anger. Um, I'm not sure those are distinct emotions. <laughs> I think <laughs> sadness and anger tend to travel together um, in some ways. Um, yeah, so I mean, it was, I was kind of sad. I was, I was kind of angry about it. Um, and then, you know, it's that grieving, right? It's just mourning for the opportunities, mourning for the loss of something that potentially could have been. Um, but then also sort of mad at myself about like, well, you don't know what, you know, it's back to my surgeon, right? Make your decision based on where you are today, not what could be the case in the future. I think then it's that like, well, I should have signed up for that thing. You know, what was I thinking mm. to give up that opportunity? Um, so questioning myself uh, shows up there as well. Yeah, I feel like there's so, there are a lot of decisions that are hard to feel 100% comfortable or happy with. Yeah, absolutely. I know that last time we talked, you mentioned you were well suited to be seriously ill. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of a funny, funny thing to say. Um, so the, I, I, I want to draw out this like sort of qualifying remark uh, that um, I am very much opposed to the idea that um, there is some sort of a divine or master plan that is guiding and directing our daily actions. Uh, I, I think that if there even is some higher something, you know, I, I do tend to think uh, that you put a bunch of people together and something emerges from that collection of people that is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think we can we can call that something sacred or holy. I think we can call that um, just some emergent property of bringing a lot of people together um, and there's some sort of energy to come out of that. Um, but I think it's common in illness communities to think, um, oh, well, this deity, whatever it is, is using you to teach a lesson or has some purpose or greater plan for you. I think that's a, a popular thing. And I don't want to take that away from people. I mean, it's not certainly I'm not in a position to tell anybody what they should think or not think. Um, that has not resonated with me because uh, I'm the one that, you know, had to have my skull opened up on the table certainly there's a better way to teach a lesson than doing that. Uh, so I'm, I am opposed to this idea that there's some master plan. Um, and, and yet, uh, I do think that there are opportunities in our life to learn the lessons, and those lessons are easily uh, uh, transferable to other experiences. And so I think that's what is the case for me. I think I am well-suited for being seriously ill. The reason I say that is here's what I saw growing up is my, my dad – being a faith leader, um, his job, you know, I don't know, 70% of it is going to long-term care facilities, going to hospitals to visit with folks who are aging or who are dealing with chronic or serious illness. Uh, my dad officiates over life cycle events all the time. I mean, he does oversee a pretty large congregation. Dad uh, officiates over a funeral. 
I mean, you know, probably twice a month, sometimes even more than that, just given the size of the faith community that he leads. Uh, and that's been the case uh, for as long as I remember. So I think that was one big influencing factor for me was that growing up, I just saw uh, that people get sick and people die. Mm -hmm. And uh, it happens to everybody. And so when it happened to me, uh, I didn't have a why me moment. I certainly had sadness about it, um, but I never thought like this is unfair necessarily or why me? I mean, not that I think I'm, I don't want to extol some virtues like I'm something special. I think I just learned that from the daily reality of having a parent who frequently uh, cared for those uh, who were sick or, or dying. And so then how having that background and then having the philosophy background, how has that informed just your thinking about death and sort of what you believe may or may not come next after that? Yeah, there's, uh, so in, in the kind of the, the religious tradition that I, that in which I was raised, and I know this isn't the same for everybody that came, uh, you know, through some sort of religious upbringing, uh, there was not doctrine uh, in my upbringing. I mean, of course, we're all background stuff. We're all exposed to something. Uh, you know, we're not complete blank slates, as it were. Um, so there's some sort of exposure there. But uh, the, the way that, that uh, my dad practices his faith uh, is not by focusing on belief, uh, but is more on focusing on action and on care for communities and for upholding love and upholding relationships. Um, so that's, you know, my dad is a, a United Church of Christ pastor. So the UCC uh, is a mainline Protestant denomination that uh, was really quick to uh, accept women in leadership and clergy positions, really quick uh, to legitimize same-sex marriage. Um, so I think, you know, more recently, the UCC... Uh, has a very vocal message around Black Lives Matter. So uh, this is, uh, I, so I was raised around like this really uh, kind of open-minded, um, you know, you've got to ask questions and you got to be critical and you got to be skeptical and you got to remember that a lot of the stuff we have to treat with some degree of humility. Um, and so it, when I think about living and dying, uh, I don't have any evidence to suggest to me what the world looks like uh, after we complete our lives here, um, in the, uh, you know, in the end game, a documentary on Netflix, uh, there's a great palliative care physician, BJ Miller, who's talking about, um, you know, that we should have some relationship with death. Uh, that's a good thing, uh, to get to know it. So it's not so scary. Um, but you know, we don't have confident evidence to suggest what happens on the other side. And so I think that that's, that's the stance that I adopt. Uh, I think living a life that is uh, as much as I can practice grounding it in kindness and love and reminding myself how important relationships and friendships are. Um, for me, I just don't see how that could go wrong uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. It seems like you have a really um, healthy relationship with uncertainty. And is that something that you had before this diagnosis as well? Like you kind of just rolled with uncertainty or hmm. has it changed? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that there is probably some natural, um, you know, just kind of dealing with ambiguity type stuff. Um, and I think it's more of just life experience. I mean, my, my younger sister, so I, I've got three siblings and me and my brother are really close. 
my sister is between us and my sister has um, some physical and developmental disabilities and these are progressive uh, in nature. So, you know, I remember hanging out with sis, uh, you know, we'd like go rollerblading and stuff as kids uh, and now she is uh, exclusively using a wheelchair um, and then, you know, has pretty significant uh, cognitive issues. I mean, um, dyslexia and learning disabilities and things like this. So, uh, you know, I think, again, that's just something that's in my past, right? Or that, I mean, in my present too, <laughs> but uh, growing up, uh, I think that just introduced more uncertainty than a lot of people get exposed to. So that probably shaped some of my comfort with just things that don't match the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so do you think much about what a good death looks like for you? Or is that something that you um, really don't sort of uh, want your mind to go there? Oh, good. Yeah. So I, I, I certainly think a lot about a, a good death. I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, there's a helpful distinction to think about. Uh, and this isn't, th this is by no means novel. I mean, this is like an internet meme. Um, but, you know, I mean, people aren't necessarily afraid of death. They're afraid of dying. Um, so I think as much as I am, you know, pretty, uh, I suspend my beliefs about what could be on the other side of this life. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't, uh, pour a lot of my time and thinking into dying. Well, uh, I do think that that's something that is important that we all consider. Um, yeah. So I think a lot about that. I mean, I think that it's important that that is uh, commensurate with, uh, my goals and my values. And I think it's really, for me, thinking about dying uh, really centers around a conversation, thinking about my identity, like who I am and how I see myself um, and how I piece together the pieces of my life that are meaningful. Um, and I think that that shows up in the way that I think about my own death. Uh, that's something that uh, Whitney and I talk about all the time. Um, I, I am, what I do best is communicate. Um, I'm a, you know, a, a lousy basketball player, um, <laughs> but I have good conversations. <laughs> so, um, there's a, a part of, of me that, uh, this damn disease is going to steal that from me. Um, likely a likely course of this disease is that I will slowly lose my ability, uh, to read and write and use language and articulate myself um, and for me, those are the most damaging blows um, that I could experience. I mean, I, being a wheelchair user for a while, not knowing how to walk for a while, that was concerning. Um, but, you know, I had the example of my sister uh, who was living the best quality of life as she is concerned, uh, dealing with similar obstacles. So that stuff didn't freak me out. Um, but as I think about approaching death, uh, thinking that, I may not be able to have conversations uh, like the one we're having today. That's terrifying to me. Mm. Um, so the good death for me um, is really focused on uh, letting Whitney know that, I, you know, I want her to read to me. I want her to tell the stories about how important it was for me uh, to connect with other people and to use information uh, as something to build bridges and to be relatable to each other. Uh, and I want that to show up in the way that I end my life, whatever that looks like. Mm hmm. You know, I woke up this morning and I was so eager to talk to you. And then I thought to myself, I wonder what it's like for you to be sharing all of this and sharing your story and that you're living this. And so 
what is it like for you to share your story? I mean, I know you mentioned a legacy, but what is it like? Yeah, it's um, that again, what a thoughtful question. So I thank you for it. And I also woke up eager for this conversation today. So we, that's that's we were both <laughs> looking forward to our time together, which is great. Um, you know, gosh, I think the um, oh boy, uh, it's a little bit like returning to the scene of the crime at times. Um, I mean, I think I had to take a break a while ago. Um, where I was really doing a lot of, I had just overloaded my schedule um, with being really ambitious and uh, wanting to speak a lot and wanting to to present a lot. I was doing a lot of trips and uh, it got to a point where it was like, man, I am running myself, uh, wearing myself down uh, out there doing this stuff. And so I think I had to think critically about it was a little bit self-serving. Like it was a little bit like, this is a feel good for me. Um, and so who am I really doing this for? And if I'm doing it for me, then uh, is your physical health worth risking because you're getting these like feel good things along the way? Is there a, a, a better sort of wider angle lens to apply to this stuff? What do you enjoy? What makes you feel good? How do you do that stuff responsibly? Um, and then and there's also this this thing in here a little bit about thinking about one's privilege. Mm-hmm. Um that has come up a lot recently because um I am I am very 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 privileged. Very privileged. Um I am I am white. I am straight. Uh my gender identity corresponds to my assigned sex. Um I have healthcare. Uh my parents both have college degrees. Uh, you know, a, a middle class, um, you know, where we've we've had to sacrifice a lot to pay medical bills. We, you know, lost our house and car and we're in a rental. I mean, there's stuff I could complain about, um, but there's uh, so much privilege that I have. And so those opportunities to be out in the world and speak and do and write and yada, yada, yada. I mean, so much of that is grounded in my privilege. Uh, and yet, um Man, there are so many bureaucratic hurdles to try to get disability benefits, to try to stay on insurance, to try to um, pay the bills. I mean, uh, you know, I do work part time, so I've got to report earnings to all these agencies for a long term disability, for Social Security. Um, I mean, there's just so much bureaucratic BS to deal with in this oppressive system that dehumanizes individuals. Uh, there is my regular seizures, headaches, sensory motor impairment. So it's this weird liminal, like I am articulate and educated and privileged on the one hand, and yet I'm sort of forgotten by society on the other, uh, that society has not decided that a terminal diagnosis is enough to get you off the hook from regular medical review, for example. So I'm jumping through bureaucratic hurdles all the time, even though I've got a disease that we know is incurable. So it's a weird space to live in. And I think I wanna share that because so much of my journey is centered on me. And when we center our experiences on ourselves, that is, uh, you know, sort of ripe ground for privilege to crop up. So there's a lot of this like second guessing that I do that I think is healthy second guessing, um, but it's a really complicated relationship to sharing my experience because it is both 
privileging in many ways and marginalizing in others, uh, which is weird. Clearly, Adam is an incredibly thoughtful person. And despite all the challenges that he faces on a daily basis, Adam continues to show up. He shows up for his family and for his community. He continues to think deeply about the world around him, and he continues to write. If you would like to learn more about Adam and his story, you can check out his blog, Glioblastology. One of his most recent posts is about lessons he has learned from what he describes as living while dying. Here's a sneak peek of one of those lessons. And uh, I was just up on a stage talking about this stuff, and I got onto the topic of death. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty comfortable speaker. I can read a room pretty well. And, you know, I went to the death territory and I saw, you know, we've got to do something uh, to help folks feel comfortable. And I just kind of said off the top, I mean, I, this wasn't, it was just a simple comment that I, I made, but I said, you know, anytime that we're fearful, we have to remind ourselves to face fear with familiarity. love that. Face fear with familiarity. Thank you so much for that, Adam, and for sharing your sage wisdom and your story. I wish for you the ability to read and write for as long as possible. And when the end nears, the ability to listen intently to the stories and the books that make you feel like you. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. Thank you so much for listening.